Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is the fabulous and gracious Billboard.com senior editor, Katie Atkinson. I wanted more adjectives. I was trying to think of another one, and I just sort of <laughs> drew a blank. Still a little husky over here. You could have gone with husky. The, the fabulous <laughs> Kathleen Turner Atkinson. As I'm joking. As she chokes. Well, Grab my water. Don't worry, guys. Well, uh, the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the week's big pop news, fun chart stats and stories, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. This week on the show, we've got news on Drake's new More Life album and how it's heading for number one next week, the blockbuster arrival of the Beauty and the Beast film and its soundtrack, how the music world reacted to the death of rock icon Chuck Berry, and how Nicki Minaj sets a new record on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Plus, we've got an interview with singer-songwriter James Blunt. He recently dropped by to talk about his new album, The After Love, working with his pal Ed Sheeran on the set, who he also happens to be touring with this summer, and uh, his perhaps surprising relationship with the late Carrie Fisher. So stick around for our chat later on in the show. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe. Just do it. (laughs) Why don't you? It's just easier than trying to find us each week on the website. True. Waiting for a tweet, and I mean, mm-hmm. wouldn't it just be easier? Um, and you can also just, you know, give us a review if you want on iTunes. And if you want to, you know, ask us a question, you can do so on Twitter. I'm Keith underscore Caulfield, and Katie is just KT Atkinson. And of course, if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. Um, well, Katie, let's hit three of the biggest music headlines uh, this week over on Billboard.com. And you should know, since you are a senior editor of the website. This is true. I have to read everything that goes on that thing. So wow. first one, of course, is Drake um, releasing More Life. Uh, his playlist is finally here. After first announcing the project back in October, uh, it debuted on Saturday on Drake's OVO Sound radio show on Beats 1. I was listening. You were listening live? I had never listened to OVO Sound before, and I actually was listening live. Wow. Because I wanted to see how this thing rolled out. I'm guessing you and many other people who might never <laughs> have listened before tuned I think in. so, yeah. Um, there are 22 brand new Drake songs for fans to digest, and 19 of those 22 songs hit the Billboard plus Twitter trending 140 chart the day the album came out. And shortly after its release, Drake even had every song in the chart's top 10. Yeah. Um, there's obviously lots of chart news to break down <laughs> yes. with this one. So, Keith, um, what does it look like? Do we have some early chart numbers already? Yeah, we do. We do. The um, uh, industry forecasters suggest the album could earn somewhere in the range of 500,000 to 550,000 equivalent album units in the week ending March 23rd. Um, And that would be the biggest week for any album since Drake's own Views album (laughs) last May when it did a little over a million units. Um, Interestingly enough, um, and that means it'll be number one on the Billboard 200, which would give Drake his seventh number one album and his seventh number one in a row and his seventh album to debut at number one. Mm. It's good to be Drake. (laughs) Um, Interesting thing about this is that uh, the album will likely set the record for the most streams generated for an album's songs in a single week um, because it's the album is selling well but not incredibly well. 
it's going to do like maybe 200 to 250,000 in traditional album sales. Right. The rest, for the most part, the bulk of that will be streams, which isn't terribly surprising. He's kind of built this as a playlist, but it's still an album. You can stream it as an album. It's about 81 minutes. You can buy it as an album. Um, and it's coming out on physical CD and vinyl in a week or two. Mm-hmm. So this effectively is an album. But it's a huge moment for streaming services. And he already broke a bunch of uh, one-day Apple and Spotify records Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the most uh, streams generated for an album's songs. He already broke both of those records. I I believe both were on, um, I want to say, Sunday, the day after the album came out, because the album came out on Saturday. So all these records were set on Sunday. Um, So, yeah, it's just a huge week. And that's just preliminary numbers. The numbers could get bigger or get more focused as the days move on. And I know we were wondering when it was built a playlist, how many songs might be on it. And yeah. obviously it's longish song wise for an album, right. but time wise, it's, it's pretty much a traditional album yeah. length. Cause I mean, you can fit about 80, 81, 82 if you're really pushing it right. on a CD. And this album is, I think it's 81 minutes Yeah, and there's 22 tracks, two of which are interludes, mm-hmm. but they're kind of like songs. Mm-hmm. They're just like one and a half minute interludes. But for the rest of it, it's like basically, it's music. Um, Except for when Drake is sampling himself in his own AMA's speech from whoa. November. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I missed like, that one. Throughout the, the, it's different songs, I think, throughout the uh, playlist. Um, he's telling people to, like, keep his name out their mouth in his AMA speech. Oh, that was the AMA speech mm-hmm. he was sampling. I kept wondering because I kept, I heard that a couple times. I'm like, where is this coming from? I really love sampling your, your own voice. That makes me laugh. <laughs> well, you give yourself permission. It's true. Yeah. That's right. He's like, do you clear the strike? I clear it. Yeah. Um, okay, should we move on to the next uh, headline? Yeah, that was also one of my biggest... Uh, that, that, that's a preview of Chart Chat. I don't like to uh, step on your Chart Chat toes, but... You no, know, um, sometimes we collude. Sometimes they overlap. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, our, our, our next bit of news is very sad. Rock and roll pioneer Chuck Berry died on Saturday at age 90. Um, the singer-songwriter and guitar great was best known for his early rock hits Johnny B. Good, Roll Over Beethoven, Maybelline, No Particular Place to Go, and his one and only Billboard Hot 100 number one, My Dingaling. I mean, really. That, I bet you weren't going to guess that. My Dingaling. I should have given it a pause there. Let people think. It's just... They're like, wait, didn't she already say Johnny B. Good? Obviously, he had a ton of very memorable songs throughout his career, um, and remembrances poured in over the weekend, including from Paul McCartney, uh, whose group, the Beatles, obviously were hugely influenced by Chuck Berry and even uh, you know covered many of his yeah. works when they were first starting out. Um, and McCartney said on Twitter, he was one of rock and roll's greatest poets. He will be missed but remembered by everyone who ever loved rock and roll. Yeah, I was I was looking at all of the tweets and the posts that were coming through. Um, I think all of the Rolling Stones that are on Twitter uh, had remembrances. Uh, the Rolling Stones' very first single was a cover of Chuck mm. Berry. Um, it's just it, rock and roll as you know it today uh, was basically formed or helped was helped formed by Chuck Berry. Any rock band that you love was either influenced by Chuck Berry directly 
or influenced by a group influenced by Chuck Berry. Yeah. That's, there's just zero question. And even if you don't think that you are incredibly familiar with Chuck Berry, you, oh, man. you've actually, you, you actually know his music. And even if you've just walk, watched Back to the Future. Sure. You're, 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 you're now familiar with Chuck Berry. Yeah. I mean, for an artist whose biggest hits came in the 1950s, I think that yeah. people the today. Before even existed. Yeah. <laughs> that people today have a lot of familiarity with his songs. And I mean, I mentioned I mean, it's obviously like a super fun, jokey song, but Run Rudolph, if you watch Home Alone, they're running through the airport. That's the song. Like, you know, so everybody knows the Chuck Berry song. Yeah. For sure. Um, oh, by the way, um, yes. I'm, I don't have a forecast yet, but it looks like uh, there's a Greatest Hits album of his that's doing particularly well on mm. iTunes. I believe it's called The Definitive Chuck Berry. It's like a 30-track collection. It's a fairly large collection. I don't have a forecast yet, but... Um, I'm assuming that it's going to probably come come back or possibly just debut on the Billboard 200, um, which would give him his first uh, charting album in a couple of years. I think mm. he was on the chart, I think, in 2012. But um, stay tuned to .com, well, Billboard.com, for news on Chuck Berry's possible chart impact next week. Well, and he happened to be working on new music and right. a new album, and his family plans to move forward with it. Um, I believe June is what they're thinking for a release date, which is what they were thinking before he passed away mm. and um it would be his first new studio album in 40 years so um yeah just 40 just 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 four decades wow um and he was still performing like he had a regular gig at like the club down the street from where he lived and he was like still actively performing wow so um you know r.i.p to chuck berry um much happier news for our final headline uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, the live-action Disney movie, hit theaters over the weekend, and it earned the seventh biggest box office opening of all time, and the best ever for a PG-rated film. So right out the gate, setting records. It earned $170 million in the U.S. and $350 million globally. So apparently the calls to boycott Disney due to the film's quote-unquote gay moment didn't have much of an impact after all. Um, now, is the seventh... <laughs> <clears throat> biggest box office opening is that for the 170 million or the 350 that's for actually both it's uh yeah it's it set both u.s and global records but the seventh is is domestic hmm. that seventh yeah um also uh so the seventh is for, is for the u.s number it's for the u.s number um also notable to point out the whenever people talk about box office numbers in america that is usually almost always referring to u.s and canada numbers mm. believe it or not so maybe i, sh- I should have said north american nope Oh, I shouldn't have. Oh, look at that. We don't have that in our box office. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Most people wouldn't realize that. I feel like you also have some Beauty and the Beast um, stats for us on the soundtrack. I do. I do. We can actually transition over to uh, my chart chat. Chart chat time. Chart chat. Speaking of all those beastly stats, let's run the Billboard chart numbers and do the chart chat dance. (laughs) Or perhaps a uh, waltz of some sort. Yes. I'll I'll be Be our guest. You be Belle. Um, (laughs) So... While Ed Sheeran's Divide album remains at number one on the Billboard 200 Albums chart this week, the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack debuts at number three. It's the highest debut of the week and actually the only album to debut inside the top ten. It earned 57,000 equivalent album units in the week ending March 16th, and 48,000 of those were in traditional album sales. Of course, these uh, figures are according to Nielsen Music. Um, The Beauty and the Beast soundtrack beats out the number 19 peak of the original 1991 animated film soundtrack, because 
because of course the new live action movie is based on the animated version from 1991. Um, and uh, mind you, the new album's numbers were racked up before the movie came out on March 17th. So we could see the album hold on handsomely in its second week on the charts as it basks in the glow of the movie's blockbuster premiere. But then again, maybe it won't. Who knows? We'll find out. It probably will. It probably will. <laughs> it seems to be doing well. Um, the second, you know, the, the the other, the number two thing on my list is wanting to talk about Drake, but we kind of covered most of Drake already. Um, but stay tuned for more uh, possible record-breaking statistics throughout the week on Next week, we'll really get into Drake. I mean, who knows how many of the tracks from the album could end up on the Hot 100. Drake has a tendency to have the entire album show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, a lot of the album is very catchy and kind of poppy. I was surprised Billboard by Billboard called it Yacht Rap. Really? <laughs> wow. Kind of like, you know, Drake's reached that level of success where he just kind of talks about, you know, being on boats and... Yeah, living the life you, you, when you get to a certain point it's like what is there left to complain like, about yeah when you get to like that sort of like jay-z like drake status yacht rap yeah um well our third and uh, final note of the uh, chart chat dance this week mm-hmm. uh, over on the billboard hot 100 uh, songs chart ed sheeran's shape of you is number one for an eighth week but farther down the chart, there's some divalicious action as Nicki Minaj beats Aretha Franklin for the most Hot 100 hits ever among women. Nicki's three new songs all debut on the chart, giving her a total of 76 hits, which beats Aretha's 73. Nicki's No Frauds with Drake and Lil Wayne debuts at number 14. Regret in Your Tears, which is a solo track, debuts at number 61. And Changed It with Lil Wayne debuts at number 71. Now, Aretha um, has been the woman with the most hits on the Hot 100 for nearly 40 years. Damn. Um, And it was uh, in June of 1977 when she first achieved the record. Uh, She notched her 54th hit that month beating the then record holder connie francis um but watch out nikki taylor swift is right behind you as she has 70 hot 100 hits a number that is sure to grow as soon as taylor drops her next album as taylor generally sees most of her album tracks reach the list even if they aren't even official singles but knowing nikki and her uh proclivity to release a trio of songs in a week yeah I don't know if she'll ever be catchable. I well, I think I think it's doable. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, because it's like if Taylor put her album out like in the fall, mm-hmm. which is typically Taylor time. Possible Taylor um, time. Taylor time. Uh, I feel like a lot of Nikki songs will come out between now and the fall. True, there'll be a lot of you collaborations know? and features. Yeah. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. this will be something to look forward to. Indeed. It's funny. A lot of these crazy records are all. You, know, you think they're unbeatable, you and think then they're unbeatable. look at what Nikki just did. 40 hmm. years. She just beat a 40-year record. Well, uh, after all that music news and chart chat, I think it is now time for our interview with James Blunt. The singer-songwriter recently stopped by The Office to talk about his new album, The Afterlove, working with Ed Sheeran and Ryan Tedder on the set, and how he went into making uh, this album not with an audience in mind and getting past a, a kind of pressure that he felt from the public following the huge success of his debut album and his number one Billboard Hot 100 hit, You're Beautiful. I thought it was kind of interesting. He actually talks about how he just kind of had this like moment of sort of revelation where he just went to this album kind of thinking, let's just 
Let's just not worry about stuff. We don't need to make another number one hit. Yeah. Like, but then maybe that's what will give him another number one hit. You never know. It's come from the most strangest places. Mm -hmm. You never know. Um, James also talks about his possibly surprising relationship with the late Carrie Fisher. Um, And uh, evidently, he was incredibly great friends with her for a very long time. And his first album, as you'll find out if you didn't already know his first album back to bedlam was named sort of in tribute to carrie fisher's house Mm -hmm. um, because so much crazy magic came from this place of bedlam (laughs) (laughs) Um, so anyways here's our chat with james blunt welcome to the billboard pop shop podcast james blunt how are you sir yeah i'm really well it's great to be back here in the states um, well, thank you for stopping by to talk about your new music, specifically your new album, The After Love. Um, I, you recently told us that you've been working on the album for about like two years, I think. Does it generally take you a while to you know, write and record uh, music for an album, or is it kind of like a quick process for you? You know, it does normally take me a while. I, I tour for 18 months. I normally go home, wash my clothes, and then start about making an album. And normally I'd write 25 songs, uh, record it over a space of a, a, maybe a year. And this one, actually, I, I've taken over, over two years to do. I've written over 100 songs and, uh, and had an amazing experience doing it. I've worked with incredible people, like the likes of uh, Ryan Tedder, the lead singer of One Republic, with Ed Sheeran. Um, who you might have heard of, um, with a guy called Stefan Mocchio who writes for The Weeknd and a girl called Mazella who wrote Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. And it's kind of been a dream team of people who, you know, who just like us, the level of excitement um, and energy um, and inspiration has made an album that is, for me, very different um, and really exciting. When you say that you write 100 songs, how in the world do you possibly narrow that down to, you know, a track list of, you know, 12 or 15 songs? Yeah, even less than that. I just go down to 10. Um, for a 10-song album, you know, it's easy. They're just the best songs. Um, I suppose the nice thing about having so many is that it just means that, you know, by the ninth and 10th song, you're not just squeezing on something that's only just got on that, just good enough for an album. It means that this album, for me, is, is really, really solid, really exciting. It means that my record label are kind of jumping up and down saying, OK, uh, you know, we've got lots of singles to choose from. I mean, it means that my friends are turning around and saying, hey, James, this is great. We don't have to lie to you anymore. We actually do like your music. <laughs> um, do, does songwriting come easy to you? Is it something that, that just, just sort of flows out of you naturally? Or is it kind of something that, that is sort of challenging to you in a way? I think like almost um, most musicians, I would say, you know, it it changes depending on the weather um, and the day and what's been going on. Some days you feel inspired and others you don't. Um, And of the two year period, um, there were there were days when I didn't. But fortunately, there were masses of days where I thought, okay, I've I've got lots to write about. Um, And and yeah, you know, this has been I've, I've had four albums in the past and it feels like there was kind of a different music career. And, uh, and this feels like, you know, a, a whole new thing. I, I stopped after my last tour. I went to Australia for a while. Um, and I came back and said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm back in the music business and in a way that I haven't been before, in a way that I'm really enjoying it. Well, what, and I, forgive me, but I mean, what changed so dramatically between, you know, the, the, the previous albums and this album, like, aside from taking a vacation, uh, or if that wasn't a vacation, I apologize. What, what, was, the, what was the big change before this album? Well, I suppose, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking about, you know, what has happened? Why is it, does it feel different? I suppose I got married, had a kid. That might be something. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you know what? I think also having had those albums in the past and, and the fact they were all related to each other uh, um, and the development from each other, and this just felt like, 
you know, I, I just wanted to do something not not with an audience in mind anymore, just something for myself. Um, and, yeah, and it just allowed me to, to write songs with a certain kind of confidence rather than a kind of an apology. What, was that something that sort of uh, lingered in the previous albums where you kind of felt like you had to write, you know, a certain way or a certain kind of music and, and you kind of had this realization like, look, I can just do this for myself. Was that something that, that existed for the for the first couple albums? Yeah, definitely. Um, my first album hit big. Um, in America, my subsequent albums didn't really hit big. Um, and so, yeah, you're always then thinking about, the, you know, the, I suppose the public reaction and what they're, they're always in the room slightly. Um, and so it's been, yeah, it, it's been nice to just get over that. Yeah, I just had to get over it. Um, and again, it was working with certain people who've really helped me do that, with Ed Sheeran, who said, come on, I loved your first album because it was open in its lyrics, so let's not mess around and hint at things. Let's say something. And again, with Ryan Tedder, he said, you know what? You, you know, you're, you're known to be this earnest guy, but I know you to be anything but that. And so instead, we wrote songs with irony and humor, and so that's why my first single says the lines like, you know, saw you standing outside a bar, would have said you're beautiful, but I used that line before. Um, you talk about Ryan and Ed on the album, and you recently also told Billboard that you're a big One Republic groupie. Uh, what is it about Ryan Tedder and his music and his songwriting uh, that really resonates with you and, and make you m- made you want to work with him? Well, he and I have written with each other before. We're friends, um, and I, I really enjoy um, meeting up in random places as we do, uh, whether it be at the Corinthia Hotel um, in London to, to write this, uh, the first single off the album, Love Me Better, or whether I you know, have jumped on a plane and met him in the middle of nowhere um, when he's on his tour. And you know, for me, it's because he wants to do things differently. He wants to have fun with it. Uh, particularly on this album, I really needed that. And so I had two ideas. Um, we, we'd been knocking these ideas together, but I played them both to my record label. One sounded kind of like related to my other stuff, related to Damien Rice or David Gray and that kind of sound, and one sounded completely different. And they said, do the safe one, do the David Gray, Damien Rice type song. And, and, I, and I went back to Ryan and played them, and he said, hey, you know, hell, you know, let's get on that plane. I was in Venice. Get on that plane, fly to Amsterdam, drive, drive to Rotterdam, meet me here. Um, we'll have three hours, but we're going to do that other song because it sounds like Akon. <laughs> and, and it sounds fun, and it sounds totally different from what you'd normally do, but it sounds unique. And he, and he was speaking specifically of, of Love Me Better, the first single? No, it's a, a different song called "Lose My Number." Ah, um, and it sounds, it sounds, yeah, it sounds awesome. And so, so yeah, it's, it was just been he just made it fun again. Um, and we, you can really hear that all over this album. It's confident and it's bold and it's exciting. You also collaborated with your friend Ed Sheeran on the album. He co-wrote, I think, at least two songs on the album, um, including one with Ryan, uh, "Time of Our Lives." Uh, why did you want to work with Ed on the album? Because I don't think you've worked with Ed previously on previous albums, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't ever written with Ed before until this album, um, but I've known him for a few years because we share um, uh, a manager, really, a management firm. Elton John owns the management firm right. um, who look after us. And so that's how we met. We've always got on and we've messed around. And then this time around, he said, come on, let's get together. So we went to Switzerland to go skiing, and I taught him how to ski, and he taught me how to write songs. Yeah, well, it's 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 good that it's good when you can have like those friendships that are like professional friendships that are actually turn into sort of fruitful working relationships, and um, you can sort of hear his influence on uh, time of our lives. I think I mean it. 
it does it sounds a little bit like ed but it also sounds distinctly like you and i think you can hear that throughout the songs that i've at least that i've heard on the album especially the songs yeah. that yeah you know songs that sound a little bit different but it's still very you yeah exactly i think he just said you know come on let's have that openness again um and so it's you know it really has been an education writing with him he's a guy at the top of his game um but his feet firmly on the ground and and, and so it's, it's i'm very lucky to um, to have those moments of writing with him. And I have to say, Time of Our Lives was, again, as a moment, you know, that's a pretty amazing list of people to be writing with, of Ed Sheeran and Ryan on the same song. I have to say that song was very much, you know, Ryan came in with this idea, and both of us, Ed and I, you know, nodded and said, okay, this is, this is absolutely stunning. Um, you know, I have to ask, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people do, uh, you know, 11 years ago, you broke through enormously with the number one Billboard Hot 100 hit, You're Beautiful, um, back when things in the industry were very, very different, and now you're coming back with a new album, and so much has changed um, from how you record to how you promote your music. What do you think for you has been the biggest change for you in your career over the past, you know, 11 years? For myself personally, or the music business, do you mean? I mean, you can answer both, whatever's, whatever suits your fancy. Well... Yeah, I mean, the music business has changed a lot since I started up. Um, you know, the CD has died, um, the download has died, and streaming has taken over. But it's really exciting that way because, you know, I hear a song and I cannot be bothered to go down to a record store personally. I hear it, um, I shazam it, and I, and I download it um, from, you know, from my tunes, and I, and I keep it with me, and I really enjoy that. Um, so the advances in the business have been fantastic. The digital world, the fact that I uh, can speak directly to people um, and tell them you know, music's coming out rather than having to use my record label as my voice, which they, their voice is different from mine, um, I, I really enjoy too because, yeah, because otherwise, well, you know what, I just think I've been portrayed as a very different person by a record label than I am, so it's been really great to have that direct means of communication. It is. It is funny. I, I. I. think I and a lot of other folks, you know, perhaps were mistaken. You know, at the beginning of your career, when we thought that you were sort of a very serious, um, you know, sort of earnest singer songwriter. Which, you know, obviously you 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 have that is part of you. But at the same time, you're a joker and and you're very funny and you have a pop sensibility too that is really shining. I think on, on the new record, especially. So I think it's great that you're able to to sort of present that to people and and in, a, in an unfiltered way. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because uh, it's funny you get portrayed a particular way, um, you know, marketed in a particular way um, and sometimes don't have any control of that. And so it's been really nice, at least on this album as well, to 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 put forward a different side of a character, to have irony and humor in songs. Um, and then the, then the label uh, have been forced to accept that. <laughs> <laughs> um, last thing, and um, I, I was fascinated by this, and I, I, I don't mean to bring up something sad, but um, I, I read recently about how you were great friends with uh, Carrie Fisher, um, and that she was the godmother to your child, and how some of your first album was recorded in her house. Um, with, with that in mind, I was wondering if her passing perhaps influenced uh, the new album in any fashion, if, if, any of the, if any of the music was inspired by her in any way? Um, no, I, she died at Christmas um, 2016, and, and I suppose I wrote one final song, Time of Our Lives, which is really um, which is, is a different song. So no, none of the songs on this album. But, you know, as a person, she's influenced me and my music um, every step of the way since I met her in 2002. Um, and when she housed me in Los Angeles and has housed me ever since, that's my, it's been my home. 
Um, and so I do feel marginally homeless now in Los Angeles, as I'm, I know a few other people do. But, um, but my first album is called Back to Bedlam because her house is, has been a, a madhouse of inspiration um, and creativity. Um, uh, yeah, the pill that's on my um, first album on the disc itself of Back to Bedlam is, is Carrie's pill from her house that you would have read about in the news recently. Yeah. Um, and um, and yeah, and so yeah, she's a huge influence on me as a person. So so not a song about her, um, but she's in all of them. Well, uh, it's been lovely chatting with you. And uh, everyone, make sure to check out James's new album, The Afterlove, and make sure to see him out in on the road later on this year. Um, so thank you so much again for taking the time, and uh, have a great rest of the year. It's a great pleasure. See you soon. <laughs> so much james for stopping by um much success to you with the new album which is out on march 24th again it's called the Afterlove. and james will open for his pal ed sheeran on tour this year starting june 29th james himself will headline his own tour i believe starting in october i think i hope that ed and james hit the stage together too once in a while i think that'd be super fun that kind of seems like it would probably happen. yeah i actually saw ed sheeran uh and rudimental was opening for them and, and they had a song together. Right. Of course, they ended up hitting well, the stage together. And, and Ed wrote a couple songs on uh, James' James's album. album. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. it kind of lends itself. Yeah. I think we are coming to the end of... No, wait. Oh, wait. It's time for the chart stat of the week. <laughs> we did not forget. <laughs> 25 years ago this week, Vanessa Williams got her first and so far only, number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 chart with Save the Best for Last. I love that song so much. You go and save It was like my last. favorite song when it came out. Wow. As a, I don't know, 10-year-old. I was going to say, you were quite young. Loved it. Uh, the former Miss America became a surprisingly successful recording artist in the late 1980s with hits like The Right Stuff and Dreamin'. But she struck it super big with the inescapable hit Save the Best for Last. The ballad would spend five weeks atop the chart, beginning on the March 21st, 1992 dated list, and Garner Williams a Grammy Award nomination for Record of the Year. The diva has since scored seven more hits on the chart, including a pair of top tens in Love Is from Beverly Hills 90210. Isn't that featuring Brian McKnight? McKnight? Yes, it's Vanessa Williams and Brian McKnight. And, of course, Colors of the Wind from the movie Pocahontas. Have you ever uh, heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? I have. (laughs) Is that what the line is? I think it is. I kind of love that song. I I was going to sing the next one, but I can't. (laughs) Um, So there you go. Uh, 25 years ago this week, Vanessa Williams topped the Hot 100 with Save the Best for Last. So, um... Now we have reached the end of the show. You saved the best for last. The I did. chart The chart stat of the week. I just went and saved the best for last. <laughs> uh, you go and save the best for last. Um, any parting words? Uh, what song should we go out oh, on well, here? I mean, should we just go out on Colors of the Wind? <laughs> I, I f- we actually just did a great ranking on Billboard.com of every song from the movies of Disney's Renaissance period. From it was like the Little Mermaid 1989. Forward. To 1999 wow. or something like where, that. Where did Colors of the Wind rank? 
it actually, I think, was close, if not in the top 10. It might be, like, number 10. Hmm. Like, it had a really big staff, like, support system. Wow. Yeah, people, like, really fought for Colors of the Wind. I'm interested in seeing this list. Yeah, so definitely go to Billboard.com and check it out and listen to the beauty of Colors of the Wind as we leave you today. See you guys next week. Bye. And you paint with all the colors of the wind.